Well, I love that song. It's a reminder of what worship and full devotion is like when you think even the, the breath that's in my lungs I'm giving back to God is a gift that he gave to me. Today, Jesus is going to talk about what it looks like in Luke to be fully devoted to him, to his kingdom, and his cause. But do that, let me tell you a story. Uh, my family will often go back to Peoria, Illinois, where my parents live, and so we'll be in Peoria, and we've got to travel from Peoria to Cincinnati. In order to get there, we've got to go through that giant elbow that is Indianapolis. And the reason I say it's an elbow is because no matter what year I come, no matter what time of day I come, it's always slow down traffic. I make my way into Indianapolis, and one time Beth and I are on our way through there, and it is like, my goodness, it took us an hour and a half to go like a mile. And it's not slow enough you can get out and stretch. It's just enough movement that you've got to stay in there. And I'm thinking, what in the world is taking so long? Finally, I can see there's an 18-wheeler off to the side. I'm like, oh my goodness, but there's no fire trucks, there's no ambulances, there's no police, nothing. I wonder what's going on. We get close enough now, I can see the 18-wheeler, and I can see that as soon as you get past 18-wheeler, people are going fast. Like, what in the world is taking so long? And then I realize, as I get a little bit closer, the only thing slowing us down is rubbernecking. Rubbernecking. Do you know this tendency? The people who have just gotten past the truck are like, I wonder what's been slowing us down so long. Guy in front of him, I wonder who's in there. Is there anything going on? Don't see any police. And, And I would be yelling at them, except I'm also rubbernecking what's going on in there. What's wasted the last hour of my life? And yet when I realized, oh my goodness, we are causing the very slowdown that I'm enduring, I'm like yelling at the people in front of me, nothing to see here, keep your head forward, run, 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 move, 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 it's the vertical pedal on the right, stop, go, 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 stop, putting your foot on the gas, right? We eventually made it to Cincinnati. Rubbernecking, this tendency to look backward and slow down rather than looking forward. Now, Jesus today is going to address this tendency in all of our hearts when it comes to his priorities and kingdoms to rubberneck, to look back. And he's going to contrast that with the harvest and what a farmer does. Think about a beautiful field, but there's nothing growing yet. And a farmer is always focused on the future harvest. And so there's a lot of times he has to delay gratification or she has to delay uh, gratification or delay gratitude. And because you've got to keep plowing, digging it up, hoping there's going to eventually be a harvest in the future. You can't look back. You're always looking forward. Just keep plowing, just keep plowing, just keep plowing, just keep digging, just keep weeding, just keep raining, just keep preparing the soil. And all of that is future tense, future focused. God's going to bring about the harvest as I focus. It's the very opposite of rubbernecking. And Jesus here is going to try and transform rubberneckers into harvest checkers. And he's going to walk through what makes you a rubbernecker. And it's like, oh, that's me, that's me. And then what does it look like to devote yourself fully to being a harvest checker and pursuing his kingdom? Now, if you remember where Ben left us off last week, back in verse 57, there's a man who comes to Jesus and says, I will go anywhere, I'll follow you anywhere you want to go. Jesus says, well, great, well, let's go now, follow me. Oh, well, I, 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 could I do something first? And immediately all these excuses come up. And Jesus is going to show some attributes of a rubbernecker by taking this very character we just met last week 
And Jesus tells some hypotheticals about some folks who don't want to follow him because they're rubbernecking backwards. He says, follow me. But this man says to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now notice he recognized he is God. Lord, but let me first go bury my father. Now, nothing wrong with burying your father. There's nothing wrong with honoring the dead. In fact, the Bible uh, tells us to honor our father and mother and to grieve. So this is a good thing. But this man takes a good thing and puts it first in front of following Jesus' command. That's usually what happens. And one of the things about being a rubbernecker is instead of saying, God says, follow me, step into my goodness, step into my kingdom. We're like, well, could, could could I first work on that? Now, we don't know if the man just died, his dad, it's a funeral, or if his dad's going to live for another 20 years. Hey, could I wait until my dad dies? Then I'll come follow you. Jesus doesn't tell us. But what Jesus does say is, whatever's going on here, he says that the Lord should be first. But anyone who says that I'm first and doesn't put me first is a rubbernecker. Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. It doesn't fit that you say I'm God. It doesn't fit that you say I'm first and you've put something else first. The rubbernecking is when you say God is a priority in your life, but it doesn't fit that you put him as the second, third, or fourth priority. Imagine like this. Maybe you're single again or your kids or grandkids are dating and a neighbor comes over and knocks on the door and says, well, I would, this might be a little too forward, but I'd love to go on a date tonight. And I have watched you. We've, we've built a friendship, a relationship over the years. And I want you to you're very, very special, very, very unique. I've, I've respected yeah, the way you care for people, your kindness, your character. I mean, I would just be such a lucky man if you would go out with me tonight at 7. In fact, this is probably too forward, but honestly, I don't think I've ever met anyone like you. And I would love to spend my life with you. And I've been watching you. It's kind of creepy. No, 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 no. This, this is seriously, seriously. I really, really, and I just really feel like, feel like there's, there's no one I've ever met like you. And, and, and you respond with, wow, well, I'm not just available at 7. I actually get off early tonight. How about 5.30? And the person responds, I was thinking 7. I've already got another date at 5.30. You've got another date at 5.30? Yeah, yeah, after that date, I was going to go out with you. And all of a sudden, that whole speech just disintegrates, right? I'm the second date of the night. The speech doesn't fit the priorities. Now, there's several phrases Jesus uses here. The first one about a rubbernecker is that your priorities don't fit the kingdom. What's first doesn't fit. The second thing he mentions is looking back. He says, but Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And I don't think the reader of this text could see the phrase looking back without thinking about the most famous looking back in the Bible. If you remember the story, Lot and his wife have been living in Sodom uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're being cast out, uh, not cast out, but the angels come and say, we're about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, I want to rescue you and God has a place for you. Run, 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 and don't look back. So Lot and his wife are running. And as they're running, the angel's like, God's going to take you right up there to that cave? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a place of, of safety. It's a place, but we've been living in a palace. We've been living in the city. And they start to debate with the angel, if you ever remember the story. 
I don't really want to go there. And they actually negotiate with the, the angel to not go to where God wants them to be, but to go to this like area that God was going to destroy. And the angel's like, all right, well, get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. But don't turn back. And so, you know, they're running, they're running, they're straight forward, focused ahead. And as they're running, Lot's wife is like, man, I'm going to miss that house. That's where we're going. Man, I'm going to miss that, those friends. Sure, 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 I'm going to miss that city. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, gangs roaming around trying to rape people all the time. But wow, it was a good place, really, other than that. And she begins to think about the few things in Psalm she misses. And all of a sudden she's running and she looks back. And she turns into a pillar of salt. If you remember from our study of Leviticus, we talked about a salt covenant. She had broken the salt covenant. And when you break the salt covenant by looking back, in those agricultural days, somebody would salt your fields if you broke the covenant. And so you could no longer grow in your field. And God was giving a tangible reminder of looking back and breaking the salt covenant. And I think the same idea is here in the past is that Jesus is saying, if you really know who I am and really know what I've called you to do, don't look back. But isn't it easy to look back? You say, I think God's calling me to X, but what he's called you to do is to be an ambassador of his in a difficult circumstance. And you're like Lot and his wife. Uh, I'd rather go here, not there. I might even want to go back there when God calls you to be a light in the middle of having cancer. It's easy to look back. Is there anything easier or better or different I could sign up for? God calls you to be a light and a steward of His in in the midst of special needs, in the midst of depression, in the midst of challenges. What has God called you to that you're tempted to rubberneck your way and go, is there any other choice? You're looking back. I was a 110 high hurdler in high school. I was pretty good at it. The few times I lost, and I didn't lose very often, was always that gun goes off. You're in the, in the starting gate. Boom! And you're running. And I was a three-stepper by, by the time I was a junior. And that means between every hurdle, you're making three steps. It's over. One, two, three. Over. One, two, three. Over. And you can hear and feel your opponents behind you breathing and breathing. Pound, pound, pound. Kicking over the hurdles if they miss it. Kicking over the hurdles. And everything in you as you're running is like, I'm just going to take a glance and see how far ahead I am. I just, just want to see whether I'm a foot ahead or two feet ahead. And the few times I lost is when, as I was running, I wonder where they are. And just that slight change of focus, that slight change of energy, and sure enough, they blew past me. Jesus is saying, I want you to keep focused ahead. Then he uses another phrase here about keeping your hand to the plow. He says, no one looking bad is fit for the kingdom of God. For having put his hand to the plow and looking back, that doesn't fit the kingdom. Now, a plow, if you talk to farmers who ever used a plow, they're very heavy and very unwieldy. They're breaking up rocks, they're breaking up weeds, and it takes full concentration to keep that thing into the dirt. And God says, when you're called, when you're following me, it is all hands on deck, hands to the plow, don't look back. And again, the way Jesus constructed this story and this account, the audience would almost for sure think of Elijah and Elisha. Almost an identical situation. Elijah has just come out of depression. I've done several messages on his depression, if you remember. 
And God said, I want you to start doing work with other people. Stop hiding in caves. Stop meditating on wrong thoughts. And one of the things he asked Elijah to do is to have a friend, Elisha. So Elijah shows up and he throws his cloak over Elisha and says, come and follow me. And Elisha, similar to the person in the story, says, well, can I first kiss, go and kiss my mom and dad? It must be a little bit more legitimate than Jesus' story because he says, sure, but then we got to go. Elisha goes back, kisses mom and dad, and then he'd been a farmer his whole life. And he says, I'm going to slaughter the oxen. They have a big old party. They slaughter the oxen, they boil it, they, they eat as a festivity, and he, he, he basically burns away everything, cuts away everything about his old life and says, I'm now fully devoted to hand to the plow. Then he gives away all of his farming equipment. He is all in in this passage in 1 Kings 19, verse 19 to 20. Can I go back and kiss my mother? You can go back again. What have I done for you? Then it goes on and says, So Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, old life's over, focused on new life, boiled their flesh, using the oxen's equipment, he gave it to all the people. There's nothing I can go back to here. The old life is gone, focus on the future, and they ate. And he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Now if you've heard the story, it's a pretty well-traveled one. In 1519, Hernan Cortez landed in Veracruz. And when he landed in Veracruz with all the ships... They had a mission to start a new settlement, to start a new life. But he knew that there was a potential of rubbernecking. So he turned to his men and said, we're going to burn the ships. The guy's like, burn the ship, we're going to burn the ships. Burn the ships. The guy's like, Captain, I you tell the best jokes, burn the ships. Sure, 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 sure. The captain ran him through. <laughs> burn the ships. Yeah. And his men are like, I guess we're going to burn the ships. And they burned the ships and they drank lots of rum amidst the glaze of burning the ships. And the captain knew that as long as there was a rubbernecking attempt to look back, to see a different way, to go a different direction, that people wouldn't focus on the vision before them. So he burned the ships. Very similar to what Elisha did by giving away his equipment and burning up all the oxen. And Jesus is saying, when you follow me, it's hand to the plow. Don't look back. Your priorities need to fit the kingdom as you keep your hand to the plow. Then Jesus transitions to what does it look like to be a harvest checker, to be a farmer not as a business but a farmer spiritually. Here's what he says. In contrast to a, to a rubbernecker who's always looking backwards before moving forward, a harvest checker is moving forward, but when they have concerns or doubts, they look upward. God, are you sure? Okay. God, I'm trusting in you. I don't look back at other alternatives. I say, God, I, I need some wisdom here. I need some grace here. I need some strength here. But I am still moving forward. First thing he mentions is that God has called you and I to do his work with him. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 other people. So he's always already appointed 12. And now God, referenced here as the Lord, appoints 70 others. And sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself is about to go. Notice again, he himself is about to go and he wants to do his work with others. And Jesus strategically sends 12 and now he's sending 70. And it's not arbitrary, just like, well, it's a not good round number, 70. He picks 70 for a reason. 
A harvest checker is someone who says, I want to do God's work with him. And even when I'm in a situation I don't like, I'm like, is there any other assignments? I'm asking the question, God, what are you doing in the midst of these circumstances that you've called me to? And how can I join you in your work in these circumstances? What kind of harvest are you trying to develop in me and those around me? Now, the reason Jesus picks the 70 is because it's a wink-wink, elbow-elbow, I'm the Messiah. If you remember the life of Moses, Moses had sent out 12. Remember he had 12 spies? He also had 12 tribal leaders. So one of the reasons Jesus picks 12 disciples is to say, I'm the new Moses. I'm the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah you've looked for. You also might remember that Moses had 70 elders that led with him. 70 elders that did the work with him in Numbers chapter 11 and Exodus 24, 1 and 9. So Jesus is mimicking, Jesus is winking, hey, I'm the fulfillment of Moses. I too am sending out 70 to do the work with me. And so in chapter 9, he sends out the 12, and in chapter chapter 10, he sends out the 70 to bring about or proclaim the peace or the shalom of of the kingdom. So the first thing a harvest checker does is says, God, I want to join you in your work. In my own life, in the life of my community, in the life of my church, in the life of those around me. How do I join you in your work? I want to be part of the 70. Second thing is a harvest checker prays. God has called me to pray for more laborers. He said to them, the harvest is truly is great. My goodness, the things God is doing, the things God wants to accomplish, the things God's going to accomplish, it's great. But the laborers are few. Therefore, if you're going to follow me, you have two choices. You're either going to be praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, or you're one of the laborers that were prayed for. There really isn't a third option. Are you praying for laborers? People who are building relationships with people far from God. People who are serving and creating a context for people to come to know God. You're either praying for laborers or you've been prayed for and you're becoming a laborer. And God would say, if you want to be a follower of mine and my kingdom, you've got to get into one of those two categories. If you're in the hand of the plow but not really doing much or praying much or even seeing the harvest or expecting the harvest... You are not fit for the kingdom. You're not fully invested in what I'm doing in the world. Our children's pastor, Sierra, my daughter, she um, was telling some stories at staff meeting recently. They had, every summer, we give the teachers uh, a chance to take the weekend off or take the summer off because most of them teach from August all the way through May. And so she's telling the story that one of the teachers that they approached, they said, hey, would you be willing, uh, we just want to serve you, you've served the, the children so well in the fourth and fifth grade, would you want to take the summer off so we can find some alternatives for you to take a break? And a couple of our volunteers said, no, no, I get as much out of giving as they do. I, I receive as much from these fourth and fifth grade girls as I give. I don't want to take a break. And they just as such a celebration of the quality of our volunteers who aren't just babysitting back in children's ministry, they're investing in a harvest. Many of you who volunteered or have had volunteers for your kids, they don't just often follow your kids just in second grade. They move up with your kids to, to develop with them and to, to create a harvest for them over the years. It's pretty amazing. 
to see the way people develop here at Horizon. And maybe you've been somebody who's invested in the harvest in our children's ministry. I would encourage you as you think about this next fall to be one of the two categories. Pray for labors for the harvest God's doing around here. The life change that's happening all the time, week in and week out. Or say maybe God's calling you to be a harvester. To be someone who's one of the laborers in the harvest. In fact, we had a funeral yesterday morning. And many of you know Patsy Hoffman. She sat over here for years and years and years. Good friend. I mentioned her story a few weeks ago that she was in hospice praying for my wife and her back issues. But she passed away this week. And at her funeral, we celebrated her life. I remember interviewing her husband right out here in the lake during a series we did in the Lord Prayer and how he came to Christ and learned about forgiveness for the first time. Powerful life change over the last 10 years of our church. And Patsy was one of those volunteers every week that came in, put curriculum together, cut things together, worked with other uh, volunteers who prepared the, the curriculum for our children's ministry. And even as she's entered into heaven, she's not yet experiencing her harvest. And here's why. Here's why Jesus waits until the Bema seat at the end of time to reward us. All of those seeds she planted, all of those lives she invested in and people she impacted are going to impact people who are going to impact people who are going to impact people. So God waits until the end of time to reward us because the harvest continues to grow even beyond our death. That's why you don't want to miss out on praying for the harvest or laboring in the harvest because we want the harvest that we get to be part of seeing God work in our life to be great. We want to stand before God and say, look at how you used my life for harvest. Then Jesus goes on from prayer to talk about giving. He says, when you go into a city, (laughs) really interesting here, go your way, behold, I'm going to send you out as lambs among wolves. Er, Excuse me? I'm calling you to be lambs among wolves. Could I have another assignment? No, I'm calling you to represent my kingdom in difficult situations. And when you're there, I want you to walk in dependence Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Shalom, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. And if not, it will return to you. But remain in the house of the son of peace, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages." Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter, they will receive you and eat such things are set before you. God says, as I'm doing my work, I also have a way to fund my work. Is I'm going to raise up in every community, in every city, in every area that I do my work, a son of shalom. Somebody who says, I believe in the ministry of Jesus. I believe in the kingdom of Jesus. I believe in his teaching from the word I feel like I need to dedicate my resources to making sure God's work is done in my city, in my place, in my community. So God says part of being a harvest checker is feeling called by God to be one of those son of shaloms. He says, by the way, giving, it's a biblical idea that the worker is worthy of his wages. And that passage comes out of Deuteronomy and it comes out of Uh, Proverbs and its reference in the New Testament as well as Jesus here it even says in the Proverbs a workman is worth his of his wages because you don't muzzle an ox while he's threshing 
When an ox is working on the harvest, an ox has a right to eat of the, the ground that he's toiling. It's a harvest metaphor. I would just encourage you, as you look to the fall, as you look to what God's doing here in, in our place, in our world, in our community, in our church, have you ever heard God's voice calling you to be a, a son of shalom? Typically in a church, and Horizon's pretty typical as well, that 20% of the attenders are the most significant givers. And the other 80% are like, well, I guess they don't have any needs around here. But God's got some incredible things in store for us. I'm going to go into some of that detail in about a month of some of the things we're going to move forward in growing people in deeper ways this year. So I'd ask you to pray about, God, your kingdom's at work. I've grown, my kids have grown, my neighbors have grown. I've learned more about the Bible than I ever have before. I see you at work in my life and my marriage. Ask God if he's calling you to be part of the harvest by giving financially to that. It's a great book. I don't know if you've read it. It's called The Paradox of Giving. It's about the fact that the more you give, the more joy you experience. And yet in contrast, it shows that the more money you make, the less percentage you give. Now the amount might go up, but the percentage doesn't go up. And yet by grasping, you don't experience the joy of giving. And the challenge is that many of us have missed out on the kingdom because we've chosen to look back and say, well, sure, God's a priority, but, you know, not a, not a real high priority. And we give to really good things, but are they eternal things? Are they spiritual things? Are they things that change people's eternal destiny? In fact, LifeWay did a survey, and they found that how do you define tithe? And Christians get into a lot of details on this. You know, it has to be 10% of your gross income, or it has to be 10% of your net income, or, or, or maybe it's just whatever you decide to, put to, to give. In fact, the word tithe means 10%, and we don't get real legalistic about it, because I don't think you should be legalistic about anything. But I think it's a good rule of thumb to be giving to God's priorities— one of them is the bride, the church. But also every year to say, I want to give a percentage of my income. Because when it's a percentage of X, it's a reminder that everything you got, X, came from God. And every year to say, God, am I becoming progressively more generous like you were generous? I had a guy came up to me one year. He was one of these guys defining the tithe, the 10 percenter. He said, hey, we've just started tithing. I'm like, wow, that's a huge step. I'm thinking, he started giving 10% of his income. That's a huge leap from zero to 10. He said, yeah, we wrote our first check for $100 this month. I'm thinking, wow, lawyering is not doing real well these days. He was a lawyer. I'm like, wow, he's gave his first tithe check, 10%. It's 100 bucks. It's $1,000 a month. I'm so glad I went into ministry, not lawyering. But there's an example where he defined the tithe by 100 bucks a month, and then he fulfilled that tithe. Now, I was just excited to see him start the process. Wherever you are, start the process and watch what God does when you put your hand to the plow. You're part of the work he's doing. Then Jesus says that we need to be part of proclaiming the kingdom. He tells those 70 who are going into the cities, I want you to heal the sick when you're there. And I want you to say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever city you enter and they do not receive you, I want you to go out in the streets and say something. So you say, the kingdom's here, and if they reject, you say this. It's a great speech. I don't recommend this necessarily for us. I think this might be for the 70. So they, they've rejected you, and you walk out in the streets and go, the very dust of your city which clings to us as we wipe off against you, nevertheless know this, the kingdom of God was here and you missed it. The French accent's optional, by the way. But basically, he would say, the kingdom of God was here, and you missed it, and we're just kicking off the dust of our feet. You've missed the chance to be part of God's work. 
Now, even though that speech may not be for us, I think the idea that we are called to proclaim and say and live and speak in a way that draws people to the kingdom is universally applicable to those who want to keep their hand to the plow. Now, sometimes that's people go way overboard and they're weird and it doesn't draw people to the kingdom. What does it look like for you with your personality to trust God and join God in the work he's doing and the people around you to be part of his work in inviting your friends to come to know Christ? I heard the story of Kathy Lee Gifford. Maybe you may know Kathy Lee. She's had a TV show, lots of different TV shows. And for really decades, she has talked about, while in the limelight, her faith, her belief in Jesus, her, her commitment to family. She's talked about that when things were going well in the midst of affairs that happened to her and how she and her husband rebuilt their marriage. It's been very, very vulnerable, very, very real, not perfect, but here's how Jesus works in my life. Well, over those decades, Howard Stern, the shock jock, began to build his career. And building his career, he met, was just would radically ream on her, and Kathy Lee and her, her family uh, and her fake, hypocritical Christian faith. And for decades, she was the punchline to his jokes. For decades, even into the Twitter sphere, would make fun of her. And she never responded once. Four or five years ago, she was preparing for a video shoot. She was sitting in her chair with her, her, her makeup artist and salonist preparing for the, the shoot of the day. And America's Got Talent was also shooting in the same building. And word it came to her that Howard Stern was in the building. Probably like, Howard Stern's in the building. Well, I want to avoid hallway A. So as she was getting prepared, she said, the, the Spirit of the Lord prompted me that I was supposed to go and give a blessing to Howard Stern. A blessing? Time for a rubberneck. Did I hear something else from... Is anybody else up there I can talk to? She asked if her salon could... Her hairstylist could stop for a moment. She gets up and she walks down the hall. She finds the area where, where his dressing room is. And Kathy knocked on the door. Come in! And here she is face to face, having never met him, but heard a lot about what he said about her and her, she and her family. She says, uh, Howard, I'm Kathy. I figure it's about time we meet. I heard you're one of the new judges on America's Got Talent. I'm just really excited for this next move in your career. And I just want to say, I hope things go really well. Shakes his hand. Closes the door. Walks off. No Jesus talk, no God talk. But she proclaimed the kingdom. Loving your enemies. Blessing those who cursed you. By the end of the day, Howard Stern got her phone number. Called her up. And Howard Stern, the shock jock, said, Will you forgive me? For the years, I have made fun of you. I just realized everything seems so fake and seems so disingenuous. What I experienced today was real. That you would t talk to me like that after how I've treated you. I just realized what I thought was hypocritical is because I could never live the kind of thing you talked about. Will you forgive me? Now, whether or not she talked about Jesus at that point or not, she may have. The guy who led us to Israel took her on a trip and said she has a Bible knowledge that's almost like an encyclopedia. She knows her scripture incredibly well. But she proclaimed the kingdom, and God used that to draw someone a little closer to Jesus. Part of being a harvest checker is all of that. 
It's joining God in his work. It's praying for God in his work. It's serving in the, in the harvest. It's, it's giving to the harvest. It's proclaiming the kingdom wherever we go. And that's how God transforms us from rubberneckers into harvest checkers. That's how we join him in his work. So let's ask ourselves some questions. Are you a rubbernecker? A lot of me is. A lot of, a lot of parts of my heart are. Or are you a harvest checker? Do I put God's kingdom first in my life? My heart? How about your thoughts? How about your calendar? How about your wallet? To use Jesus' words, do my priorities fit the kingdom I say I'm committed to? As it comes to being a harvest checker, are you working in the harvest these days? Do you have a feeling that you're not just going through life, but you're joining God in His work all around you? Are you praying for workers in the harvest? Have you ever really wrestled with, asked God, looked forward to the idea that you might be a son of shalom? that might be financially part of what God is doing in the world and proclaiming his kingdom and word here in our community and beyond? And are you building relationships with people far from God that God might use to produce a harvest? And Jesus says the reason the stakes are so high and the reason I want to just tack on this last verse here is because we have been entrusted with so much and we're going to be held accountable to it. He gives a whole series of woes coming right after this. It's really strange, actually. He says, I say to you, it's going to be more tolerable in the, ne- in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah for that city than this city. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works that were done here had been done back in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. They would have repented with sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon, at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who exalted to heaven... We're proud and arrogant. You're going to be brought down. For he who hears you hears me. And he who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. It's really fascinating. Sodom and Gomorrah had some pretty bad judgment. And he's saying, Corazon and Bethsaida, you're going to have worse judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because God always gives us a fair trial. But part of the way God evaluates us is we are evaluated based on the amount of light we've been given. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have the Bible, didn't have Jesus. They're still going to be judged, but it's going to be more tolerable for them than those who are face-to-face with Jesus, God, come in the flesh right here, right now. This is the kingdom, and you're rejecting it with signs and wonders and God himself in front of you, and you're actually going to have a stricter judgment because of the amount of light you've been given. I just think we ought to wrestle with that. We live in the freest country in the, in the history, one of the most prosperous, pro- prosperous times in history. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have the full canon, the Bible from God. We know about what Jesus did. We know how he died, what he did, what he called us to. We've been entrusted with an awful lot of light. And with all of that light, he says, woe unto you. 
who with all the light you've been given, don't see the calling to put your hand on the plow and join me in my work of changing the world. Let's pray. Father, what a convicting word. What a challenging word. Will you show us, not out of fear, but out of love, out of conviction, how we can be part of what you're doing as the summer comes to an end, as this fall begins. We want to join you in your work and be part of the incredible, truly great harvest you're producing in the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Thanks for being here today.